provide some context to when you first joined Transdime and the responsibilities that you had? I joined Transdime back actually in 2000. So prior to that, I worked with DuPont and their aerospace division, the Best Bell Group, and I worked with General Electric. So I've had experience with large organizations prior to joining Transdime. So I was just finishing my master's degree when the opportunity to join Transdime as a senior design engineer came up. So I was actually a part of the Aerocontrolics group. And as Transdime went from being privately held organization, going into the publicly, their IPO essentially, it was around the 9-11 timeframe. And, you know, just after those years, there were a lot of consolidations and things. And it afforded me the opportunity to move from the engineering role into a product management marketing role. And then from that point, you know, my career expanded going from product line management to director of sales and marketing of some of the most recent and early acquisitions, and then ultimately to a president of one of their operating groups, CEF industry. So, you know, it really afforded me an opportunity to grow with the culture and actually to be one of the ambassadors of the Transdime culture and bringing that into new acquisitions. So it was a, a very interesting time, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity uh, that I had to, to work with that team. So you was part of this integration team, SWAT team that goes in and, and embeds the culture on, on these new acquisitions. That's correct. So, you know, one of the first things that people aren't really aware of when you think about Transdime and their culture and their acquisition strategy and model, that all starts before they actually purchase the company. So when companies are, you know, fed into that acquisition funnel, you know, meeting certain criteria around particular markets, meeting certain criteria around, you know, financials and meeting certain criteria around intellectual property or technology. Those fall into the funnel, but then there's other aspects of the business that, you know, doing that initial due diligence and interaction with either bankers or some of the executive team of those potential acquisitions we'd start to determine and develop an understanding of whether or not that company really could fit within Transdime's overall culture and, and, and really fit within basically a portfolio. So it's really interesting. I mean, they almost have the strategy of a private equity team building out various portfolios and various platforms, right? So you'll hear that a lot in private equity and, and Transdime, that's, probably one of their keys to success is that they behave in a very disciplined and, and almost, I would say, unemotional way in a lot of their acquisition. So can we walk through the, the process from start to finish then? So let's say the, assume that we have a, we've acquired a business. How exactly does Transdime approach introducing the, the culture to the new acquisition? Right. So two things. Number one, they do a very, you know, thorough review of the incumbent leadership. So a lot of the acquisitions, let me step back a moment. So there's the product line acquisitions and there are company acquisitions, right? So on the product line acquisition side, they'll identify an internal team that will 
subsequently absorb that product line. Now, that product line may come with an operating location that was part of another organization, and they identify people within that operating location, you know, shop supervisors, people that are in, uh, you know, materials or, or inventory, those sorts of things that they view as, you know, key to helping to usher the culture within that product line. In an organization, they do a very similar thing. They'll review the operations manager, engineering manager, the uh, accounting team or, or controller, financial controller, HR. And they'll look at that team and say, okay, does this team buy into our kind of vision? Which is pretty simple. I mean, they, they, they really have a very simple vision for how they want their companies to operate. You know, they want companies that are very customer centric in terms of understanding the needs of their customers. They want people that are going to basically act as owners, right? So, and the, the third thing is they want people that will take risk, but, but you know, measured risk. And, and they're going to take risks in terms of technology, in terms of, you know, new market share, those sorts of things. And so if people that are on the existing team exhibit those or, 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 or seem to be aligned with those sorts of operating modes, then, then they'll keep them on. One of the key things about Transdyne culture is that it's really more about decentralized leadership versus centralized leadership. So as I said, I worked with DuPont, I've worked with GE, you know, even more recently working with Triumph Group. That's one thing that became very noticeable about the difference in culture. So Transdyne will have a operating company president or site leader that has a lot more authority than in other organizations like GE or DuPont or United Technologies, where they understand the concept of a reversible decision versus an irreversible decision, right? So they kind of make it pretty clear on if you're doing something that's going to damage the intellectual property ownership of the company, if you're doing something that's going to change the overall contractual relationship with major customer like Boeing or Airbus or General Electric, those things need to be discussed up the chain, you know, always sometimes to the CEO level. Other decisions around pricing, around particular, you know, business programs or particular aircraft programs, those are reversible decisions. And so the local people have a lot of autonomy in terms of the ability to decide what new business they're going to take on and what new business they aren't. And it's interesting because that even plays a role in how Transdime operating companies do work with each other. So there isn't a corporate mandate to say, well, we have a electric motor company, so all of our companies that need electric motors will buy from our own internal suppliers, right? So you may buy from a competitor to one of the other Transdime divisions because that competitor has a technology or a solution that doesn't exist internally. Or maybe the two align where an internal group wants to, 
you know, enter into a particular technology and the other group has an enabling program that allows that to happen. So those things happen kind of organically and naturally, and it's, it's not a forced sort of decision making. So that, that's really kind of the underlying culture. Is that how you look at it internally between product line acquisitions and whole business acquisitions, for example? For example, the, the Esther line is a complete acquisition. Right. They also acquired a, I think it was Kirkhill from Estherline a few years back. And so that would be more like a product line acquisition. Correct. 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 You know, so for instance, I think with Tactair, you know, they, they acquired a product line, which was the um, cargo automation and handling systems that are utilized in, you know, the cargo aircraft, the rollers and the electromechanical system that, that, provides that cargo handling within FedEx, UPS, those sorts of customers. Well, that was a product line acquisition. And they identified a a candidate internal existing Transdyne business that could absorb that, right? So those are some of the, yes, William, those are some of the decisions that they make when they're looking at various businesses, whether it's, as I said, a product line or an entire business. And sometimes You know, if you think about the McKechnie acquisition, where they bought a number of companies, that was one of the first very large, broad acquisitions that they did. Well, the McKechnie Group also had a number of fastener businesses in the UK and Europe that really didn't fit within Transdyne's portfolio. So they quickly acquired it and then divested that fastener business to Arconic. So, you know, again, they're very, very aware of what businesses that their model can add value to and what businesses they can't, you know, so they're, they're very pragmatic about that. So you've, you've bought a business, you've gone in, you've changed the culture, you've introduced this new operating structure. What are the changes in the cost structure you make? Take a product line acquisition. What do you cut out and, and what, what, what do you aim for cost savings in that fixed cost or, or total cost base? Right, right. So a lot of times when you look at a product line or you look at a business, some of the things around efficiency that are quickly able to be realized are around inventory. A lot of businesses run very fat in terms of, and the inventory is usually tied up in work in process. So you have bits of unfinished goods sitting in one location then, you know, three processes forward, there's another, <laughs> uh, you know, another lot of inventory of the same actual product in a different state of completeness, right? So what they do is quickly come in when they look at those sorts of things, they rationalize what kind of finished goods do they want to have. And most of the companies that you'll see in aerospace they don't spend as much time as Transdyne does thinking about where finished goods should be stored in order to be as most flexible, right? So let's just take an example of a pump, right? So you've got a pump that you design. You're going to have a castings and housings that go into it. You're going to have gear or gyrotor pumping elements that go into it. Then you're going to have you know, electronics that go into it, right? So you can either store 
the casting level and, and the total raw material side, or you can store it at the final pump assembly, right? So the way that that thought process works is you really allow, you know, going back to that customer focus and customer facing philosophy, if you need to sell finished pumps directly to airline customers, there's value in having finished goods at the highest inventory value, which is a finished tested pump ready to be installed on a aircraft. And there may not be as much value in keeping sensors, switches, and castings because no airline shop can do a repair of your unit to that inventory level, right? So a lot of times you go into businesses and they keep inventory at these very low levels thinking, okay, well, when I receive an order, then I'm going to, you know, do all the necessary steps to make that into the final part. Well, you know, that's an unnecessary cost. So, so both variable and fixed costs driven up by that business philosophy for how you run your shop, right? So by having it at the highest level, it's, it, you think about it that, wow, my inventory value went up from, you know, I'm just giving round numbers, $5 million to now I've, I've put all the labor and everything else into it. And these finished goods are at $15 million, right? But that $15 million, that inventory will turn much faster than that $5 million that you need to add in all that work anyways. So that, that's just a simple example, but there are other examples where they will say, okay, there are a lot of shops that do repairs on these units. So having finished units is not the best place to hold inventory. We need to supply sensors and castings and other material to the marketplace, to the airlines, to the MRO facilities. So therefore, keeping the inventory at that other level is actually higher value because again, it, it increases inventory turns. And so that just is a very simple example of what they do in terms of working capital. Don't these existing companies, don't they understand that or what do they do wrong? A lot of times, and, and it's really been interesting because it, you would think that most of that type of thought would happen at like a, a mom and pop shop, right? But no, you go into the big places like the Ester Lines and the, you know, McKechnie's and, you know, even the Eaton's and, and Goodrich's of the world, you'll go into those businesses and find that they haven't rationalized their inventories. And, and they haven't rationalized their inventories in terms of aligning them to how the market procures the products. It's really interesting because, you know, a lot of, you think about GE Aerospace, you think about uh, now what's, everything is Raytheon now, right? So it was Rockwell, it was Collins, which was UTAS, all that stuff. They were all similar to Transign made up of many various acquisitions over years and years and years, right? And so everyone that took that acquisition on thought that the prior management must have figured that out and it's as efficient as it needs to be. And the larger the organization gets, the further away from the value stream decisions are being made. So that's the real goldmine of how Transdime culture allows them to operate so efficiently 
is that by being decentralized, they move decisions to the closest point of the value stream. So now I have a product line manager that's responsible for the margin expansion, the revenue expansion, and the development of new business streams for a particular value stream. So whether it's a product line, whether it's a business unit, there's some person responsible for performing this type of analysis. And then that discussion happens at the operating group president level. And then that discussion happens at the executive vice president and COO level, right? So people will, you know, probe that new paradigm or that decision that they want to make to move inventory from, you know, a particular position to another new position. They'll be probing questions, but those questions aren't to say you shouldn't do this. The questions are, okay, how is the value going to be changed by making these changes in the way we operate our business, right? So it's truly collaborative. It, it truly is. And it's, it's, it's truly open. And what's the extent of the change that you've seen in, in, in the financials? Typically, just for example, when you do clean up the inventory, it must be hugely accretive to, you know, margins. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just throwing out round numbers, you know, an EBITDA expansion just from those sorts of things or, or working capital, you, you could see, you know, double digit changes, you know, 10, 20 percent changes in freeing up working capital, uh, creating, you know, more profitability, expanding revenue. Because, again, you know, some of these larger businesses have always had these very old distribution agreements where, you know, they rely on a distributor like an Aviol, or which is now Boeing Global Services, Satair, which is now Airbus, and, and the other distribution partners to give them that customer-facing market information to think, okay, you should, you know, they hold the inventory for a lot of these other businesses, right? Transdime takes an active role in that. They'll say, okay, even though you're my distribution partner, I'm going to tell you what parts I want you to hold. And I'm going to tell you what parts will no longer be available to the market. And a lot of distribution partners, that's pretty unheard of. They're, they're set aback a lot of times. But it's truly that that rationalization is usually double digit, especially in the first five years of uh, an acquisition you'll see you know double digit changes just from something of that magnitude the next area that they are very focused on in that first you know five years of the an acquisition is where is the pricing for their products right and so that's the next biggest i'll say that's really usually the first <laughs> that's the first biggest <laughs> vision is understanding how the products go to market, right? And so there's a OEM portion of that. There's a direct to airlines portion of that. And then there's a direct to MRO maintenance providers portion of that, right? So they look at the three paths to market and they, again, go through similar uh, rationalization. So OEM, to Transdime is 
pretty strict. And, and people like Honeywell follow this. People like UTAS follow this. People like GE Aviation and Rolls-Royce follow this very strictly as well. OEM, in their minds, only relates to a product that will go on to a new airframe rolling off of the production line. That is the definition of OEM. Now, if an OEM like Boeing is procuring a product and it's not utilized for a new airframe, it's not OEM, it's aftermarket. And so the other thing that Transdime is very strict about doing is understanding what's called pass-through or leakage to the aftermarket. So they will go to their OEM customers because, again, they have relationship with the airframers, so they know, as a matter of fact, how many engines rolled off of Rolls-Royce's engine line and how many of those engines were actually utilized on A320s or A350s or what have you. And then they'll go to the OEM that they have as their you know, supply chain to the market and say, okay, last year, 10 aircraft rolled out. So that means that 20 engines, since these are two engine aircraft, were OEM. You purchased 42 engines worth. So therefore, there's a difference between the pricing for the 20 engines that were OEM for new airframes and the remaining 22 engines that you procure. And so a lot of times they'll go in and fix contracts, fix pricing to establish two tiers, one tier for an OEM for brand new engines and another tier for the OEM doing aftermarket work. And so they basically, what happens is they level the playing field. So the MRO shop, the airline, and the OEM doing that service work almost have you know price parity, which for a lot of businesses immediately raises the revenue and profitability because they were basically allowing the OEM to have a hundred percent share in that, and they had zero percent share in that aftermarket. Why did the existing companies have that structure? We never could understand that. And even when I moved to Triumph Group, I couldn't understand that either. It just, I don't know. I don't know. But what, so, so they just, that they, they basically give the same, they let the OEM own, own part of the aftermarket for, for their parts. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'll tell you, recently, and this is not really recently, but recently in, in aerospace, 2008 to 2012, Airbus and Boeing went on a very rigid campaign to change their contracts to remove, you know, two-tier aftermarket pricing from a lot of their OEM contracts. But prior to 2008, the language didn't even exist in many of the contracts that said, regardless of the in-market use, you will sell all products to me at a fixed price. That didn't even exist in some of the contracts, but yet people allowed them to procure spare components 
at production OEM prices. And so that put a big strain on a lot of the supply chain. And, and that's why some of the businesses were available, right? Because they couldn't maintain and support their business when it made a big switch from, you know, in-production aircraft to out-of-production aircraft, right? And, and now you're, instead of manufacturing for, you know, 150 aircraft per year, you're manufacturing for three aircraft per year being produced. But yet, 300 aircraft per year are being serviced in the aftermarket. But you can't contribute. You can't participate, I mean. So that put a huge financial strain on a number of people in the supply chain. And, and those are some of the reasons that, you know, people just walked away from different product lines or businesses because they deemed them to be unprofitable, but they didn't understand why. They weren't really digging in. So effectively, what you're saying is that the historically the the OEMs were purchasing parts for those aircraft or airframes in production. They were purchasing double, so they could then go and serve the shops and the airlines in the aftermarket and and either reprice or keep the same price or whatever it may be, but capture that profit. Yeah, because think about it exactly. And the really difficult thing to comprehend is. In the aftermarket, there are, you know, published price lists, right? So maybe, you know, and I'll just throw out an example like Ryanair or Southwest, right? With the big fleet of 737s, they're going to be able to cut a deal with Boeing and Aviol and those and get, uh, you know, preferred discounting. But it's nowhere near what the supply chain signs up to be on a Boeing airframe. So when you think about OEM and you think about aftermarket, you know, decisions, right? That was one of your questions that the, you kind of talked about in terms of strategy for OEMs versus aftermarket. On the OEM side, people fail to think about qualification costs, engineering costs, and a lot of the supply chain absorbs that to participate on a program like 787, to participate on a program like A350. So that frees up working capital, frees up investment that Airbus or Boeing would have had to make to qualify the hydraulic system fully because subcomponents of that system were qualified by their supplier partners, right? So the aftermarket is really where you basically recuperate the landed costs that you put in in order to be on that platform. So it's not that they're just getting a free revenue stream. The problem is, and that, that's where companies get into issues, especially in aerospace, is whether you are dealing with a casting supplier, whether you're dealing with an electronic supplier, or you're dealing with an engineered product supplier like Transdime, Triumph, and Amatec, you have an investment up front to get on that airframe. So now your program, when you're pricing it to the OEM, is priced in a way that has a, you know, almost, uh, you know, depreciation schedule for how you 
recuperate those initial costs and, and then turn profitability for the program. So profitability doesn't happen when the plane ships to the first airline customer. Everyone starts to get profitable five years, eight years after introduction of service. You know, very similar, you know, you can think about industrial and, and uh, automotive in a very similar way, right? You, you know, there's a big automotive aftermarket parts market, right? But in terms of how this works then, so, so Transdome is not just jacking up the prices across the board. They go in, they say, right, this is, this is the, o, the OE price, this is the OEM price, and actually this is the aftermarket price, and that's going to be that's going to be repriced now so I can recuperate my engineering outlay and costs and actually capture some of that margin that otherwise the OEM would, would capture. Correct. Correct. Right. So they're, they're basically asking for equitable split. And uh, what does the OEM say to that? <laughs> they usually don't they, because they were, imagine if I've been doing this all of the time, I'm pretty shocked, right? Because but then when we sit at the table and it's really understood and explained, they don't have a leg to stand on a lot of times. And that's why you see them, you know, being very successful at doing that sort of repricing and, and, and doing that leveling, right? Because they know the people on the other side of the table. And, and, as, and, and initially when Transdime was just growing as a player in the aerospace market, it was tough for a lot of people to take, but over the years, they know the people at Boeing, they know the people at Rockwell, Raytheon, all that. They know the people at Airbus. And so when the guys know that they bought the business, they already know kind of what's about to happen. They say, okay, our free ride's over. <laughs> We're going to actually have to come to the table and, you know, equitably split up the pie. But what could they do? Could, could they, do you think there could be some backlash or some risk to the Transdime model if the OEMs decide that they're not going to have this anymore? There could, but see, here's the problem, especially right now in this new COVID environment, the supply chain in aerospace is actually an inverse pyramid. You know, I, I recall this from early on in my career when I was working with one of our legal partners and, and she just told me, she said, really, aerospace contracts are an enigma to me. The way they're written, basically, the supplier seems to be an indentured servant to the OEM. But yet, the supplier is the one that holds all the cards in the agreement. So you almost want to be that indentured servant because the OEM can't get rid of you. So imagine, on the systems that Transdime participates in, Boeing having to go requalify the qualification cost, the development of a new supplier. So all of that cost and the bigger issue that people sometimes overlook, the risk of failing qualification. Those barriers make it very difficult for the OEMs to walk away. And now, like I say, in today's post-COVID world where you have the 737 MAX, and their engineers are spending all their time working that. They just laid off 16,000 engineers. So insourcing, which was a threat post-COVID, and when Boeing had a very nice, you know, cash purse of, you know, billions of dollars on their balance sheet, that 
looked like it could be a threat that, you know, maybe there would be an insourcing philosophy in Boeing to, 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 uh, uh, remove quote, you know, uh, problem suppliers or, or, or suppliers that they don't deem to be aligned with the Boeing's um, philosophy around this working together, you know, the, the partnering for success, right? That was actually a, a threat at one point, but today I, I don't believe that that exists. And I, I believe now Boeing is in a, a very tough spot because they have to have their suppliers healthy and viable in order to return back to production, you know, so they don't have time to, to look into various suppliers. The other element, William, that Transdime keeps a very high level of focus on is delivery and quality. So when they buy a business, they immediately work on that business having, you know, above 95% compliance to schedule of orders. Two things that that does. One, back to that whole working capital thing. So I figured out where my inventory needs to be to be as flexible as possible to meet my customer order demand. And now I'm meeting my customer order demand. So that means that I'm not having inventory just sitting around of no value, and I can reduce the amount of inventory I have on hand because I'm performing on delivery. Quality, I don't have turnbacks, I don't have recalls from the field, those sorts of things. That makes Boeing less likely, Airbus less likely to say, you know what, we need to look into this supplier, we need to do something about this particular company, we need to find an alternative. They don't have time because they got other suppliers that are actually a problem. They, they aren't delivering or what they are delivering has a very high fallout rate. So if price is the only thing that you're concerned about, it becomes an, a non-issue. And actually Boeing looks at it and says, hey, wait a minute, I'm actually getting value for this because I don't have, you know, Transdime parts and inventory on our shop floor. We get them when we need them. We don't hold inventory for them. So that's working capital at Boeing, Airbus, Eaton, you know, Rockwell, Collins, whomever doesn't have to have. So that's worth something. The quality, the no turnbacks, that's worth something. So again, that philosophy around being customer focused, thinking about how do you deliver their orders? How are you doing on their quality? And then having your engineering and technical teams, they're able to respond quickly for either new programs or existing programs to support the customer. That customer focus, you know, takes everything else and puts it in a, a different perspective. So sometimes people thought, oh man, when Transdime buys this business, it's going to be a problem. Nowadays, you will hear, well, Transdime bought the business. Well, at least we won't have to worry about that set of products anymore. So, and I think that that's that's one thing. It, it's certainly the delivery. You can't argue with the, the quality of the operations. How, how does the conversation go with the with the OEM? Let's say you buy a business. Everyone realizes what's going to happen now with Transdime. They know the they know the model, the strategy. How does that negotiation go with the price? And does, does Transdime capture back the whole aftermarket or do they have a negotiation with the OEM to discuss the price in the aftermarket? 
Yeah, it's a case by case. And in some cases, they can capture the whole aftermarket. And in other cases, there'll be a equitable split, right? That's the beauty of the business model of having a decentralized leadership. You have people that have the time and intellectual space and capacity to actually sit down and go through a logical review of what the different business model options would be, right? Whereas if you go to some other companies, that discussion happens at executive vice president level, and they don't even know what they're giving up. They don't know what they're gaining. They're at such a high level. They're looking in the balance sheet at things that, you know, they may have destroyed profitability of a product line. So you're going to get various different price changes for some of those smaller parts. You can get like the 50, 60% changes in the aftermarket. And in the other, other parts, you're going to get very, you know, different, smaller changes potentially. Right, right, right. And sometimes on OEM contracts, they're participating, right? So that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, 787, those types of things. The people participated to make the plane affordable for the airline to take it, but then they understood that over the five years, eight years schedule, there would be a break-even point, and then there would be profitability. And so that's how they maintain those sorts of relationships. Yeah. Let's talk about the aftermarket then. How does the airline and the MRO shop look at the price changes? Well, for them, here's the, the beautiful part. <laughs> that people really aren't paying attention to when they do the analysis around transact. There's very minimal change a lot of times because basically now Transdime is just getting the price that the OEM was getting in the aftermarket directly to them, right? So to, to the tomorrow <laughs> the shopping airline, they're just thinking, okay, I'm just getting my parts. I'm just paying Transdime now, not Boeing, yeah. Right. I'm just buying this right. I'm not buying it from Honeywell. I'm buying it from Transdyne now, right? And so so a lot of that is is invisible in some senses. The other thing you think about for airlines, three top costs, jet fuel, labor, food, right? Everything else is fourth string. And most of the parts that they're supplying aren't you know, $50 million systems or something like that, they're, you know, maybe $10,000 parts down to $200 part, down to $50, you know, filters and things, right? So a lot of this stuff, the procurement people at the airline or the MRO shop, you're not even, you know, raising the interest of the procurement manager, let alone the VP of procurement, right? So, so this isn't, again, you're, you, the organizations you're dealing with are larger and, and more centralized leadership. So if it doesn't hit certain thresholds, it never even shows up on their radar. So no one's saying anything to them most of the time. Does Transime not aim to change the price materially higher from what the OEM was charging or the existing aftermarket price? Or are there some customers that are actually like, actually, wait, this is like 50% higher? Right. So that analysis really goes back to what they do in terms of the life cycle of an aircraft, right? So in production aircraft have a particular price and the amount of price that they raise is, you know, single digits. 
out of production but operating aircraft get a mid-range type of price increase and then totally out of production aircraft get a large very large price increase because a lot of times you're making a one-off and so it's not that they're just arbitrarily doing this price increase it goes back to what we talked about earlier in that supply chain piece right so if you've got to make castings for a Fokker 100, <laughs> you're going to pay a lot of money for those castings. Then you're going to spend a lot of money machining for three castings. You're going to spend a lot of money to put those through the test stand and get the fixtures and things back up and certify. So it's not that there's a, you know, just, you know, that people have these, thoughts around like arbitrary pricing, there's a logical reason for why that happens. And, and that's why you have companies that exist like Antic, where they purchase out of production product lines from various OEM aerospace manufacturers at different places in the supply chain, because they know that serving and servicing these operating fleets that have been out of production for a number of years requires special contracts, special relationships, special supply chains that most OEMs, after you get to a certain point, they can't do it efficiently. And so it's really, you know, clearly the, I think the DOD had the audit of Transdime and it's all discussions around the pricing. So it's really not just like you buy the asset, you ramp up the prices across the board it is this value-based pricing approach that they take where it depends on you know the oem the aftermarket the, the product what the life cycle of the platform where the aircraft is and and the logical pricing across the board right right and that's why if you, you think about all those things that that people were you know making accusations around you notice that none of that went anywhere because there is clearly documented clearly understood methodology for how these things happen. There is no arbitrary nature in there. But it's it's difficult for large organizations to understand that. And it's so like if you're talking to a Lockheed Martin or you're talking to, you know, a Boeing Defense, they can't understand that because they don't have people that are solely responsible for thinking about things like that. So the only way that they apply those things is through these arbitrary, you know, top-down methodologies. And what Transdime does is bottom up. And so I would say that if you think about their business, they're probably run in a less efficient way from a managerial standpoint. They have more people than some other organizations, but the jobs that those people hold and the functions that those people perform far outweigh the value that they bring to the business. And these other businesses, they have these armies of people that are just doing reports and big data analysis, and no one ever asked that bottom line question. Why do we keep 8 million resistors in inventory? We don't even make circuit assemblies any longer. We only use a resistor if there's a quality term back. So why are we keeping these? I don't know. We always kept those, right? So there's things that 
basically in these large bureaucratic organizations disappear out of people's minds, right? So there's behaviors, there's purchases, there's management philosophy that becomes automatic and it becomes bad habit, right? So a lot of times what happens is when you go, you know, we're, we're kind of circling back to the beginning about your, your culture thing. So what happens is when they talk about the culture being that the people act as owners, it's actually taking the, you know, cover off of those sacred cows, those old paradigms that people just thought that you couldn't question why we did this. You couldn't question why these, you know, product flows occur in our plant, right? You couldn't question why our plant was laid out the way it was, right? All of that stuff is open and all of that stuff is investigated. And instead of them just talking about it, they empower the team to do stuff. So go from one plant to another plant within Transdyne, they may be totally different laid out. One plant may use group technology, right? And cellular manufacturing. Another plant may use single piece flow. Another plant may do batch processing. All three of them decided on their own and showed the team what, you know, financial gain, whether it's cost, whether it's, you know, increasing on-time delivery, which increases the revenue and profitability, whatever it is, they showed the management team how that change was going to affect the business. And they said, go and do it. And not just go and do it, go and do it. And then we're going to measure it quarter over quarter, month over month. And then once they see that it's stuck, it's part of their operation. So now that's the new paradigm going forward. And that's what's interesting is their name, Transdime, is actually, you know, most people have no clue when they think about that, but it is. It's a transition from one kind of paradigm to another. And it's astonishing how energized people that have been in an organization for a number of years become when you actually go and sit down and empower the shop floor lead, the stock room lead, the you know, quality inspector lead and allow them to implement programs that they believe will make a difference in the business and reward them for it. It, it, it really is. You said, what do you think is the biggest risk to the value-based pricing method? The biggest risk, honestly, is if, you know, Transdime as it's, you know, handing off its various leadership reins, and, you know, people like Nick Holly are moving into other roles. So when I was there, Nick Holly was COO, Doug Peacock was chairman. And then, you know, Ray Lobenthal became CEO. He was president of AeroControlX, so I worked under him. And then, you know, most recently, they've just moved to Kevin Steen, who came from outside at uh, PCC. So I, I believe the biggest risk is that they start to lose that culture and they because as they get larger the culture is very hard to manage because it's decentralized leadership decentralized decision making right so there's a lot of work that the people at the middle layer executive vice presidents and regional divisional controllers and, and those sorts of things 
there's a lot of work they have to do to understand what's happening for the portfolio companies they're responsible for managing, right? And they spend a lot of time and a lot of meetings and visiting a lot of plants and getting into a lot of detail. So as that business grows, the natural inclination is to remove that workload off of senior management by centralizing decision-making, right? Say, you know what? I'm going to make all these decisions so I don't need to talk to all you people anymore and go polling and go through, combing through all this detail. So I believe that will be the biggest risk to their ability to, you know, pull value out of the model is going to a centralized culture. And when you look at the acquisition of Line, and as the business gets bigger, you know, it becomes harder to make, you know, drive incremental value with those smaller parts. So naturally you're going to buy bigger businesses, bigger parts of the platforms. You're going to arguably then dent in more to the OEM's profit pool. So how do you look at the tension between the OEMs and Transdime as the business scales and that strategy? Yeah, I honestly, I think that as they've scaled, you know, from some of the interactions I've had with the, you know, senior people at Boeing, senior people at Airbus, it was interesting because they actually view Transdime better than they view Honeywell and you know, United Technologies, honestly. So it's interesting that they're driving that customer-centered focus and making sure their operating units really do perform world-class. That doesn't happen at some of the Honeywell sites. That doesn't happen at a lot of the UTAS sites. And as you know, you're thinking big company, a big company. Airbus went through that A320neo nacelle insourcing program because they were so upset with United Technologies at the time, which controlled the nacelle with Roar, the thrust reverser with Wolverhampton, and the gear turbo fan engine from Pratt & Whitney. And so they had a fully integrated you know, single supply chain that they had to deal with for the A320neo, their customers and Airbus were livid about the servicing levels. And so the customers forced Airbus to insource. And that gave, you know, Triumph Group, Transdyne, the opportunity to supply product in that schema that, you know, they were participating in the ecosystem with Airbus and, and, you know, Bombardier, Belfast, and all those people exclusive to UTAS. So it's interesting because I think some of the airframers are actually starting to take a different perspective of them as they start to manage larger organizations, right? So a lot of people thought, okay, the model works fine, but there are all these little small companies and they're more or less a PE firm, you know, with a bunch of platforms, but now they've grown out of that and they've still been successful, right? And people thought the model was over before Esterline purchased, right? And after Esterline was purchased, you know, you, you hear things in the industry about people being happy with Esterline under Transdyne and weren't happy with Esterline 
stand alone. <laughs> and it comes back again to this culture that you said and, and, and customer focus. And I mean, what, what do you think would be the, I mean, I'm curious about the actual unit growth, like the underlying unit growth of, of the parts and the portfolio companies that they have. Let's take the price out of the equation. So let's take the, the revenue growth that you get from price. What, is, what does the unit growth look like for these companies? Is it cyclical? Is it just standard parts growth? Or do you actually, like you said, do you drive incremental revenue growth because you have inventory closer to the customer and, and the things you said earlier? Yeah, so... Honestly, William, is all of the above, but let me just give you the, the overall model of that, right? So the companies they purchase and the companies they own, they're very, you know, Transdime's value statement is, you know, three value drivers are price, productivity, and profitable new business, right? So that's the third leg that's being worked on that you just uh, questioned, you know, about looking at unit growth and those sorts of things. So they're looking for profitable new business. So they're getting on A350. They're getting on, you know, 787. They're getting on, you know, now A220, which used to be C-Series. They're on those forward platforms, you know, future vertical lift, a number of those forward platforms. They're investing heavily in engineering. So they buy these companies, they get rid of middle management, they get rid of fat that is unnecessary, they get rid of things that are accretive to their structure, but they do hire more engineers. And they do hire, you know, people that are responsible for driving a refresh of the platform. So you look at the life cycle, you know, they're on in production aircraft. They're on aircraft that are in operations, but in declining production. They're on aircraft that are out of production and still being operated, right? And then they're on aircraft that are very old and <laughs> still operating. So they participate in the full value stream and the full life cycle of the aerospace industry. And again, the decentralized management philosophy allows them to buy product line, buy revenue stream, buy value stream, understand what needs to be done in order to guarantee the future production of that revenue stream. Every now and then there's something that happens where technology changes in such a way that it just basically destroys a revenue stream, similar to the computer getting rid of the typewriter, right? But Let's just use Adele Wiggins as an example. You know, Adele Wiggins makes these hose com uh, clamps and other things, and they were making fuel isolators for metallic winged aircraft. Well, Adele Wiggins invested heavily, went through an engineering process, and made fuel isolators for composite aircraft. So they kept that fuel isolator line which should have been a declining product line. So you can look at particular businesses, look at AeroControlX. It's a, basically a buggy whip type business, right? That's what you would think. But they're in the new electrical passenger doors. They're in the, the, all these passenger doors, passenger slides, uh, uh, access panels, laboratory systems. They're 
they're participating in all that stuff. So whether it's uh, mechanical or went to electric, so so they had to have invested engineering to be able to do that. Otherwise, they you know those product lines should have been you know deceased years ago, right? So so that's that's again one of the things that I believe a lot of analysts that look at the business they are very anecdotal, but they don't spend enough time to actually question their theory and the theory that the model's going to run out because it's not based on, you know, a refreshing uh, or, or a continued ability to supply into the aerospace marketplace. That's just wholly untrue. It's borne itself out with a number of the businesses. Talk to me about the time of, at Triumph when you were competing with Transdime. Yeah, it was quite interesting because honestly, there's only a few intersections where Triumph and Transdime and, and in aerospace in general that companies compete. It's really interesting because usually everyone's in an individual swim lane. So, you know, the example I gave with Aero Control X and the uh, cable business, whether it's the uh, push-pull ball bearing cable or the uh, wire rope cables, Triumph Group has a identical business called Triumph Mechanical Solutions. And so, you know, whether that's in, you know, engine controls, potable water systems, lavatory systems, they have an identical product line. But the two businesses really compete on very specific systems. And so we'll see each other every now and then, but they're hard to beat. I'll be honest. I mean, we had a latch uh, product line that competed against Hartwell and very similar products. But Hartwell, the customers had a higher regard for the engineering team at Hartwell than the engineering team at Triumph Group. So we had a hard time many times selling because we'd have to you know, sit down, do engineering workshops with the customer's team. Yeah, with the OEM to get them comfortable that we know what we're doing. Whereas with Hartwell, everyone was on a first name basis. They only bought from Hartwell. So every now and then we'd be able to displace them. But it was really a wake up call because my team was quite surprised. And then, you know, when we bring it back to our leadership at Triumph, that Transdyne spent the kind of resources on engineering that, you know, they could embed a team for four months on a new program we we'd have a hard time sometimes because you know we'd have our engineers flex between two programs three programs they think okay this is a critical program for us that engineer is totally dedicated to that customer to that program till we win it and transdyne had the money to do that and the scale to do this so that, that actually benefits them as they do scale to, to to allocate resources to the new platforms Right, right. And, and again, that decision was being made by the people at Hartwell. You know, Nick Howley or Kevin Steen, they didn't hear about that at all. And the executive vice president maybe heard about it in a footnote on a monthly report. At Triumph Group with this more, you know, centralized leadership, the VP of business development is talking to me about what we need to do. And it's like, they're already there. If, if you keep talking to me, we, we won't have an opportunity. <laughs> it's funny how it all goes back to this 
this culture at TransTime and, and being close to the customer, being being decentralized, it just organizes the institution in a way that makes it very hard to compete with if you're not organized that way. Yeah, it is. It is very hard to compete with because the people you're competing with have a command of detail that you can't have. You know, when I was at Triumph Group, I was vice president of business development for the entire billion dollar integrated system portfolio, right? So I'm going in and parachuting in on the, you know, A320 Neo engine nacelle program. I've got to read all these documents and the people that I'm meeting up against that are at the customer, they work for Hartwell. They don't work for Transdime. They work for Hartwell. That is the only thing that they have to read. That is the only thing that they have to know. And so details inside of the procurement specification from Bombardier, they have a command. They've talked about this in you know, exhaustive detail, whereas myself and my team, that's one of many things that we've got to go through. But it's it's so funny when when we speak about it like this, it makes no sense that you'd organize in that centralized manner, right? <laughs> right, but that's the standard of all business in the world. You know, they think about most businesses think about it as a a military operation, right? And it's a command and control thing, and they think of the CEO as the one pulling the levers and turning the knobs. And Nick Holly, the biggest thing that he would do when I was at Transdyne, whether it was when I was a product line manager or president of an operating group, he'd ask probing questions. And he, he would never pretend to know the detail of what you're doing. He would never pretend to know the detail of the particular market that you're discussing. But he'd ask probing questions about, why would you look at it in that fashion? Is there another way for us to do this without doing this other thing? And his questions were always centered around the information that you're discussing with him, not about any other things. He doesn't try to pretend to be the smartest person in the room. He actually comes in and he would work with the team collaboratively. And, and everyone felt comfortable to sharing all the dirty laundry about anything. That was one thing that they would call it in Transdime, that the biggest sin to make in leadership is the sin of omission. Not telling me what I need to know because you're afraid to or you think that it's, you know, politically not expedient to you. And so they created a culture where they have conversations that I haven't heard in other businesses, honestly. They have conversations around difficult topics, difficult decisions to make that I don't hear in other businesses. And it's, it's, that's what makes them pretty much an enigma to other businesses. You know, when, when Transline early days, when they first, I would say it was uh you know, 2005 time frame, people say, well, somebody like Honeywell or UTAS may buy them. And we used to make a joke and say, they're going to run away from any acquisition like that because they don't understand the business and they don't want to look stupid. So the big boys always shied away because they can't fathom working this way. <laughs>